Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing right along in this rather lengthy series, which is entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we have just begun uh, part six of seven parts in all. And I do want to mention, especially for those who may be more comfortable with Spanish than with English, uh, we did this part six in a rather abbreviated form uh, down in Florida recently, and all of those messages were translated from English into Spanish. And the notes, unfortunately, are only in English, but the audio of all of those meetings uh, has been uploaded to our website. So uh, if you know people that maybe don't speak English but would like to follow that along in Spanish, uh, that and all the other notes and recordings of previous studies uh, would be available at new-life-ministries.org and you can download the outline notes as well as the audio recordings there. Um, this is a very important and a very exciting part of this whole study. We've now come to the promised land. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness have been completed. God removed uh, that older generation of grumblers, backsliders, complainers, and a new generation was raised up during that 40-year time, and they are the ones that have now crossed the River Jordan into the Promised Land. The only exception, of course, being um, Joshua and Caleb, who were the two that came back with a positive report. All the other spies came back with discouraging negative reports. But they had a different spirit. They had a spirit of faith, and they wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord kept them throughout that whole 40-year uh, delay in the wilderness, and they are now a part of the group that has crossed over into the Promised Land. And as we saw last time, introducing this uh, sixth part, Conquering Seven Nations, God had been speaking for many, many years about the fact that in the Promised Land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a beautiful, good, spacious land, there were also inhabitants there that would eventually need to be conquered and driven out. And that's where we pick up in this part of the study now. And I want to reread a portion of scripture from last week. If you're following in the notes, we've come to page 84. And I want to read from Deuteronomy 7, uh, from verse 1 to 6. And this will be easy for you to remember, because it's Deuteronomy 7, and this is where it mentions all seven of the nations that Israel needed to conquer and drive out as they possessed the land flowing with milk and honey. Here we go, from verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, 
Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you, and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now just to recap a couple of things, we can go all the way back, and we're going to do this in a moment, to Genesis 15, where God first began to introduce this whole story to Abraham. And he laid out the basic framework of what was going to happen over the next 40 plus, I'm sorry, 400 plus years, that Abraham's descendants would be slaves in a foreign land, they would eventually come out of that land with great wealth, they would go into the promised land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. However, there were other people occupying that land. And more information is added here in the passage we just read in Deuteronomy 7. God is very careful to tell them, these seven nations are larger and stronger than you. Well, that's not very good news, except for the fact God has been telling them over and over and over, I'm going to go before you, I will drive them out, I will destroy them, and then you just basically have to mop up. But I'm going to go before you as a devouring fire, I'm going to send in my hornets after them, and I will drive them out. So it really didn't matter how big, how strong they were, they were no match for God. And the message here for you and me is very clear. We're going to have enemies, we're going to have obstacles, we're going to have challenges in this Christian life, and God has deliberately designed it so that they're stronger, more powerful than we are, so that we cannot do it in our own strength. Our own wisdom will fail us. We must lean on the Lord and trust in His power to defeat them. So, here's the list that we're going to be... <coughs> excuse me looking at over the next weeks. Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And 
This passage we've just read from Deuteronomy 7 is extremely important, and there are many, many implications for you and for me as New Testament followers of Christ. And we'll be talking about this throughout this study, but these enemies that were to be defeated, God told them, I don't want you making any treaties with them, marrying them, worshiping their gods, bowing down to their altars, or basically compromising with them in any way, shape, or form. And here's the reason why. God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be holy, a people holy to the Lord. People get scared when they hear the word holy. They have all kinds of images that come into their minds of wearing fancy robes or whatever. Holy simply means separate. God wanted them to be separate from all of these defilements that were present in the land of Canaan. He wanted them to be separated unto himself because, he says, you are my people and you're my treasured possession. So, not only did these seven nations need to be overcome, conquered, defeated, driven out, but God did not want His people being influenced or contaminated by their religion, by their philosophy, or by any of their practices. Now, whenever you see the number seven in the Bible, it's highly significant. Seven, of course, is a number that's often used to represent fullness, completeness, perfection, and things of that nature. We have seven days in the week. And, you know, there are astronomical reasons for us having months and even years, but there's only one reason why we have a seven-day week. It's because of the Bible, and it's because of the seven days of creation mentioned in the book of Genesis. There's no other reason. As a matter of fact, cultures down through the ages have tried to break away from a seven-day week. They've tried to have an eight-day week, a ten-day week, and it has always failed. They've always ended up back on a seven-day week. Why? Because it's a part of the original creation. God stamped that on his creation. He created all things in six days, and he rested on the seventh. So seven days makes a complete week. And whenever you see the number seven, it represents fullness. It represents some kind of a completion or a perfection. Now, in, in this case, there were seven nations dwelling in the land of Canaan. And we're going to see in just a minute, they were evil nations. They were filthy, defiled, perverse nations. And the moral wickedness of these seven nations combined had to reach a certain fullness or a full measure before God 
would bring judgment upon them. And this is an extremely important point, and this is something God has been speaking to me a lot about in the last month or two. And you don't find this concept anywhere else in the Bible, but it is very plain and very clear in this particular story of Israel going into the Promised Land and driving out these seven nations. And I mentioned earlier tonight, we need to go all the way back to Genesis 15 and look at a revelation that God gave to Abraham there. Let's read this again because it's so critical to, I think, grasping this whole story of Israel conquering these seven nations. And remember, we're not just doing a history lesson from the Bible. This is all history. It really did happen. But as we've mentioned repeatedly, God takes historical accounts from the Bible and uses them to paint a far more important spiritual picture, often of things to come, and in some cases even of eternal things. In our case, this whole story of Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the Promised Land, is a picture of our whole Christian journey. We start out in slavery. We're bound. We're slaves of sin. And God has to deliver us out of that bondage through the blood of the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. He takes us through the waters of the Red Sea, which represents water baptism. He brings us to Mount Sinai, where His fire and His glory comes down and is visible to all of the people. A picture of what happened on the day of Pentecost, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And even their wilderness wanderings, we saw, represent some of the chastenings and discipline that God brings into our lives to teach us, to train us, to humble us, etc. And likewise, coming into the Promised Land and conquering these seven nations, it is a very clear picture of what God has called us as Christians to do now. We're called to overcome. But you have to think about that word. If there's no enemy, if there's no challenge, then there's nothing to overcome. So if we're going to overcome, then there must be something in our way. There must be a, a challenge, a devil, an enemy, or something that has to be defeated. So the parallels between what happened with Israel in the Old Testament and what is happening in our lives today are very clear. All right, here we go. Genesis 15, from verse 12 down to verse 16. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Let's pause for a second. You know, I love prophecy. Prophecy is one of the most powerful proofs of the reality of God. 
He knows the end from the beginning. No other God, and I use little g for any other God, no other God can predict the future with the certainty and the accuracy that Jehovah God does. And prophecy is one of the overwhelming proofs in the Bible that God is who he says he is. And here's one example of that. Long before anything could have possibly been known about this, Abraham is told, your descendants will spend 400, not 300, not 500 or so, not 399, not 401, 400 years exactly, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Abraham had no way of knowing what was going to happen with his descendants, with Isaac, and then with Jacob, and with Jacob's son Joseph, and how he would end up in Egypt, and eventually the whole nation would go down into Egypt and end up being enslaved there. He had no way of predicting all this. God was revealing to him the future. This is a beautiful example of prophecy. 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated there. Every detail in this prophecy came to pass. You can check it out in the book of Exodus. Exactly 400 years, Israel was in slavery in a foreign land, namely in Egypt. But, it's the next part we want to look at, from verse 14. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. Man, did God punish Egypt. Plague after plague after plague rained down upon them, until finally all the firstborn died on that Passover night. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Even that detail is fulfilled. You can read about it in Exodus 12. The Egyptians gave them gold, silver, all kinds of wealth when they left Egypt. Verse 15. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Now, if you study the whole chapter, at this moment, Abraham is in the land of Canaan. So God says, in the fourth generation, after this 400 years of slavery in Egypt, your descendants are going to come back here to Canaan. And here's the part that is so fascinating. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now you may remember the Amorites are one of the seven nations we just listed there in Deuteronomy 7. This is a very interesting, fascinating, peculiar, I could go on with the adjectives, but it's a very profound piece of scripture. 
and you don't find anything quite like it anywhere else in the Bible, God is basically saying, I'm going to be waiting until something happens. Something has to happen before the slavery in Egypt can end and your descendants can come back here to the land of Canaan, the promised land. What has to happen? The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That word full measure in Hebrew is the word shalem, which means complete, full, or perfect. So, God is saying the sin that's in Canaan has to somehow come to completeness, fullness, or perfection. So, coupling that with the fact that there are seven of these evil nations, it makes for a very interesting uh, study here that somehow evil had to grow until it reached perfection in the promised land before God could bring judgment on that evil. And I don't want to stray too far tonight, but make no mistake, this is what's happening in the United States. This is what's happening in a number of other nations of the world right now. God is allowing evil to grow, to mature, and to reach its perfection. But make no mistake, God will not be mocked. God will eventually bring judgment on that evil the same way he did in the land of Canaan. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. But my friend, look out when sin reaches its full measure. Because that's when God shows up with his holy fire. That's when God brings in his hornets. And that's when God begins to bring judgment on the evil and the wickedness that is there. Now, another very important scripture, two chapters ahead of where we began tonight. We started off in Deuteronomy 7. Now let's flip up to Deuteronomy 9. And here, God gives us a lot more information about these seven nations and why he's going to drive them out and bring Israel in to replace them. This is extremely important for us to understand, and it has some real parallels and some real applications to our day here in America and in other nations of the world today where we're seeing wickedness like a cancer like a tumor growing out of control. And it's like, what is going on? The world is going insane. Oh, God knows what's going on. He's allowing all this to happen. And there's an end to it all. In Deuteronomy 9, let's read from verse 1 to 5. Hear Israel. You are now about to cross the Jordan to go in 
and dispossess nations, here it is again, greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Oh, wow. This is going to be a lot of fun. Nations greater and stronger than we are, and they even have large cities with walls up to the sky. But remember, God has already told them, don't worry about them. I'm going ahead of you. Verse 2. The people are strong and tall. Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said. Who can stand up against the Anakites? This wasn't anything new to them. God had already told them about these giants and walled cities and strong nations. Verse 3. But be assured today. You and I need to be assured. We need real assurance in our hearts of what God has said, what God has promised, and what God will do. Be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. Period. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. Verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, so he's giving them a warning here, after all this happens, and it will happen, because God said it would, after all these nations have been defeated and driven out, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Ah. That would be a logical conclusion. It's because I'm special to God. It's because... I'm walking with the Lord. It's because of my righteousness, my goodness, my faith. Fill in the blanks. It's because of my virtue that these enemies are being defeated. God says, no. No. And we need to pay close attention to this because we might entertain some of these same thoughts. Oh, the Lord's given me victory over my enemies because he sees you know, what a good man or what a good woman I am, how many hours I'm spending in the Word, and I'm prayed up, and I got the anointing, and I got gifts, and on and on and on, has nothing to do with us. It's all about the wickedness of the nations. Follow this. This is very important. The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness, no, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations. Okay, now we're learning something key about these seven nations. They're wicked. We already read about the sin of the Amorites reaching its full measure. Couple that with the fact that God now says all seven of these nations are wicked. 
It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations. I want to stop here because I fear that some of us are still missing this. This is a very important point. We need to get deep down in our spirit. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity. Those are good things to have. We want righteousness. We want integrity. But that's not why he's going to drive them out. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember? Way back in Genesis 15, God swore to Abraham what he was going to do. He's going to drive them out to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This word, wickedness, it may be translated differently depending on your Bible, but in the NIV, twice here, God says, on account of the wickedness of these nations. The word in Hebrew is risha, which means wrong, especially moral wrong. It means fault, wickedness, as it's translated here, or iniquity. So it's definitely referring to moral wickedness, moral uh, wrong or iniquity. There's something very wrong about these seven nations. They're very immoral. They're very unclean. There's something wrong about their whole lifestyle. And in the next two passages, we'll be able to fill in some more blanks. We'll find out that they were wicked both in their religion, in their religious life, and in their moral practices. They were evil, they were idolatrous, and they were perverse. Let's go to Psalm 106, where there's a reference made to these nations that were living in Canaan. And I want you to notice again in these two passages how God is warning the Israelites, don't be like them. And this is why this point is so important. God says, I'm going to drive them out because they're wicked. If you become like them, I'll drive you out too. So don't think that, you know, you're my favorite little pets and that's why I'm giving you this land flowing with milk and honey. No, I'm hoping to find somebody who will live right, who will live morally and live according to my laws and statutes and decrees to replace these filthy, defiled, wicked, perverse nations that are presently in the land. But in Psalm 106, from verse 34, I'd like to read all the way down to verse 40. 
God is referring to the failure of the Israelites to do what he had told them way back there in Deuteronomy 7. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. Remember, he warned them, don't make any treaties with them, don't have any marriages with their sons or with their daughters, smash their altars, destroy all their idols, don't adopt any of their religions or any of their customs. But Israel did just the opposite. They didn't destroy the peoples that the Lord commanded, and they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. What kind of customs? Verse 36, they worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. So now we're learning some more valuable information about these seven wicked nations. They were religious. They worshipped gods, but they didn't worship the God of Israel. They worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. And instead of Israel going in and smashing down their idols and all of their false gods and altars, Israel adopted their customs. And, verse 36 again, worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. This is a very common practice which archaeologists still find evidence of in the ruins of some of the ancient peoples. I know when I was in Honduras, I visited the Mayan ruins there, and you could see very clear evidence of stones that had been carved out as altars for human sacrifices. They even had, uh, like, little depressions in the rocks where a human head would have fit and they would have been beheaded and then they had a basin there to collect the blood. Gross, very gross things that went on in some of these cultures. Well, that's what these nations were doing. Sacrificing their sons and their daughters to false gods and Israel copied them. Why do we always want to copy the world? Why does the church want to be like the world when the world has been declared by God to be evil, perverse, fallen, corrupt, and wicked? It's what Israel did. They adopted their customs and even followed them in this. Sacrificed sons and daughters to false gods. Verse 38, they shed innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Notice that, idols of Canaan. Canaan was full of idols. When Joshua and the twelve tribes first crossed the river Jordan and came into the land, it was full of idols. And the land was desecrated. Notice that. The land was desecrated by all the blood that they had been shedding 
in these sacrifices to false gods. Verse 39, They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds they prostituted themselves. Two more words, defiled, prostituted. So these seven nations were very immoral, very wicked. Idolatry, murder, shedding of innocent blood, prostitution, all kinds of moral defilements. And verse 40, Therefore the Lord was angry with His people and abhorred His inheritance. So you can only figure how angry He was with these seven nations whom the Israelites were trying to copy. It gets worse, though. In Leviticus 18, we get much more detail about some of the immoral practices of these seven nations of Canaan. Leviticus 18, from verse 22 to 28. God is giving rules and moral laws to his people, but notice the references here to the nations that were there in Canaan. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Well, don't even get me started on this one tonight. I think I've already spoken my piece. But we live in a culture that is upside down. It is completely upside down now. The majority of people in this country approve of what God calls detestable. Verse 23. Do not have sexual relations with an animal. That's what's coming next. And defile yourself with it. None of these things are new. Don't think that what we're seeing going on in America and a number of other nations is anything new. This stuff's been around for ages. Homosexuality, bestiality, they had it all in Canaan. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a, oops, this isn't politi politically correct. A perversion. They were practicing all kinds of sexual perversions in the land of Canaan. Here's God's word to the Israelites. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. These ways, my friend, are defiling do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Okay, stop. This is all in bold in your notes if you're following there. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. In any of what ways? Homosexuality, bestiality, other kinds of sexual immorality. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations, the seven nations, 
that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. So we could actually start to make a list now of all the words that God has used to refer to these seven nations. They're stronger, they're taller, but they're wicked, they're perverse, and they're defiled. These seven nations have become defiled. And based on Genesis 15, the sin has now reached full measure because God is about to execute judgment on them. Even the land was defiled. Let me say something about the United States of America. This was once a great nation. It was founded by men and women that loved God, loved the Word of God, and wanted it to be a beacon to the nations of Christianity. We are very, very rapidly moving away from that, and as we are, the whole land, the whole country, is going to become defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it. God punished the nations, but he also punished the land. God will punish America. If this nation continues moving in the direction it's in, the land will be punished. We can only expect more natural disasters, floods, wars, terrorist attacks, etc., 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 fill in the blanks. I'm not wishing for those things. I'm not praying for those things. God says in his word, he will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. The land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Hmm. The land vomited out its inhabitants. Now God turns it back to his people. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. You must not do any of these detestable things. There's another word. Defiled, detestable, perverse things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land. That's the, the seven nations we're going to be studying. All these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. Now here's the punchline, and I want you to tie all this together tonight. God told them, I'm not taking you in there because you're good people. I'm taking you in there because these people are wicked. And their wickedness has reached perfection now. I must bring judgment on them. It makes me so sick. Their defilements, their perversions, their detestable idolatries and immoralities that the land is going to vomit them out. But you, people of God, be very careful that you don't adopt their customs do any of the detestable things that they're doing, 
And here's what it says in verse 28. If you do, if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So, God's going to drive these seven nations out. But that's why those warnings in Deuteronomy 7 have to be the foundation of this whole part of their history. This is where they failed. They went in, God drove out the nations, but Israel did just the opposite of what God told them. They adopted all their customs, practiced all of their idolatry and false religions, even sacrificing their sons and daughters to false gods, and even adopting these perversions that God explicitly warned them not to partake in. Homosexuality, bestiality, all kinds of adultery, fornication, immorality, you can lump it all together. Immoral sexual sins. You practice them, I'll vomit you out too. So, God is no respecter of persons. We can't think, oh, because I got a big Christian badge on and I carry a six-pound leather Bible under my right arm, God's going to look the other way when I do this stuff. Oh, really? I don't think so. And we've discussed this in previous studies. If they didn't get away with it in the Old Testament, don't think we're going to get away with it. Judgment must begin at the house of God. God is cleaning house now. He's cleaning up his church and getting a people ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be a church without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. There will be none of this defilement in his bride. So yes, praise God. He's going ahead of us like a devouring fire. He's sending in his hornets. The fire of the Holy Spirit is going to drive out all of these enemies. But we better be careful to allow the Holy Spirit to drive all the junk out of us so that we become holy like he is holy. Now, a couple more important things I want to do to tie up our time here tonight. Repeatedly, God assured the Israelites of complete victory over these nations. It doesn't matter how tall they are, how high the walls of their cities go up to heaven. God told them, I'm going to give you victory. And it's not because of you, not because of your righteousness. Matter of fact, it's not even going to be your own sword that gets you the victory. Because then you would have something to boast about. And we've talked about this before. God didn't want them boasting about themselves. This was going to bring praise and glory to God after he drove out these seven wicked nations. Look with me in Joshua chapter 24, the very last chapter of Joshua. Joshua's about done. His mission is complete. He's taken them into the promised land. They have fought against all of these nations. And now Israel is beginning to take possession of the land. Listen to what he says. Joshua 24, let's read from verse 11 to 13. 
Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also, and here they are, the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I, the Lord is speaking, gave them into your hands. I gave them into your hands. Verse 12, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. And here's the key. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. This is something I just cannot escape for weeks and weeks and weeks now in the Word of God. Everywhere I look, I see the same thing. God deliberately and with purpose designs situations for you and for me that are beyond our ability so that we'll cry out to God, trust in God, call on His name, He'll come, fight our battles, deliver us out of trouble, give us victory, and then He gets all the praise. Otherwise, if they had done it with their own sword and bow, the temptation would have been too great, they would have taken the credit. So God designs these situations so that we can only boast in Him and not in ourselves. So that we can boldly say, The Lord is my helper. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. Verse 13, So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. That's entering into rest. They didn't have to fight. They didn't have to build. They didn't have to plant. God did everything for them. It's all by grace. All they had to do was trust God and obey God. Now, this last part, I'm going to skim tonight, but we'll probably need to come back to it next time because it is also very, very important. <clears throat> Where did these seven nations come from? What is their origin? Does the Bible tell us where they came from? Indeed it does. And this is a very powerful and profound lesson for all of us. Let's look briefly at the origin of these seven nations. Basically, we're going to find way back in Genesis 9 and 10 that six of these seven nations were all the descendants of Noah's grandson. And you may remember the story, but we're going to look at it. After the flood, Noah planted vineyards. And one day, he got drunk. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Noah, the man of the ark, got drunk. This is after the flood. And he, he really did become inebriated to the point that he was laying naked inside of his tent. And you remember, he had three, three sons. 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They were all on the ark. They were three of the eight who made it through the flood. And something very interesting happens here that would affect centuries of history. And the point I want to make tonight is we're not often thinking about the consequences of our actions, be they good or be they evil. But the consequences of a person's actions can be very far-reaching. Let's read about it quickly, and I'll probably jump over certain parts for the sake of time. Genesis 9, and we'll start from verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Notice that. Canaan. Father of Canaan. Verse 19. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. So, these three sons are going to be like the progenitors of all the human race. So, they're going to be very key and very important to the future of mankind. Verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Just a side note, if the, if the Bible had been written by men, this part would have been stricken out. It doesn't look real good that the guy who built the ark and preached for 120 years for people to repent and stop their wickedness and violence doesn't really make a, a good clean story now that the builder of the ark has gotten drunk and is laying naked inside of his tent. But it's all there in the Bible. The Bible tells about Abraham lying. The Bible tells about Noah getting drunk. The Bible tells us about Aaron building a golden calf right at Mount Sinai. It's all in the Bible. Verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. I have all that in bold type in the notes. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Hmm. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Obviously, these two sons had a greater respect for their father, and that's why they went in backwards and covered his nakedness. Whereas Ham not only had no respect for his father, he exposed the nakedness of his father, if you will, to his two brothers. He went out and published it, told his two brothers outside. 
Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. And here's where it gets really interesting. He didn't say, cursed be Ham. Ham's the one that saw him naked and went out and told the two brothers. But the curse comes on Ham's son, Canaan. Verse 25 again. He said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So, what seems to us to be... I mean, come on, this wasn't any real big deal. Noah got drunk. Ham saw him. Went out and told his two brothers. Obviously, there was something God was seeing that maybe we don't. Something about Ham's actions was particularly displeasing, not just to Noah, but to God. That God, through Noah's lips, brought a curse, not on Ham, but on his son, Canaan. I've been asked before, why didn't God curse Ham? The only reason I can come up with is at the beginning of this chapter, when they got off of the ark, God blessed Noah and his three sons. They had already been blessed by God. So that blessing could not be reversed. It could not be turned into a curse. So God brought the curse on the next generation, on Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be. But if you jump up to the next chapter... Here's where you see the power of that one action and that curse that came upon Canaan. In Genesis 10, and I'm going to jump over a lot of this for the sake of time, starting at verse 6, it says, The sons of Ham, and it mentions Cush, Egypt, put and Canaan, Egypt and Canaan were both uh, descendants of Ham. Verse 8, Cush was the father of Nimrod. Verse 10, the first centers of Nimrod's kingdom were Babylon, or Babel. Verse 11, from that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh. Verse 13 again mentions Egypt, from whom the Philistines came. If you know your Bible, you're recognizing these are all enemies of Israel. They would eventually all be problems, enemies, challenges for God's true people. 
Babylon, Nineveh, Philistines, Egypt. All byproducts, descendants of this one man, Ham, who exposed his father's nakedness. But verse 15 is the verse we want to really center on. Where did these seven nations occupying Canaan with all these wicked, perverse, defiling, detestable practices come from? Well, here it comes. Canaan was the father of Sidon. The Sidonians were another enemy nation of Israel. And of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, and Hivites. Five of the seven nations are direct descendants from Canaan. Canaan, of course, formed his own nation, the Canaanites. So literally, six of these seven nations were the result of this incident that we just read about in Genesis 9. Again, I highlight what I said earlier. The consequences of our sin often go way beyond anything we expected or imagined. I'm sure Ham had no clue that his action that day was going to result in six wicked, perverse, defiled nations occupying the land that God said he was going to vomit out because they made him so sick. If you study this over, I think you'll begin to grasp the, the, the power of this. This is profound. That actions give rise to nations of evil and wickedness in the Old Testament. And spiritually speaking, sometimes our actions can have far-reaching consequences. It can affect not only our whole family, it can affect our community, our city, our church, and yes, even our nation. Now, in closing... I want to give you an outline of what we're going to be looking at in these coming weeks. Here's a summary of the seven nations that we've been listing, and we're going to look at what each one of them represents spiritually. And you'll have to take my word for this tonight, but we'll explain where some of these meanings come from as we move along. Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Hivites, Girgashites, Perizzites, Jebusites... By the way, the only nation that's missing from those six that we just discussed is the Perizzites. And they're very interesting. When we get to them, uh, we'll find out that there's nothing mentioned in the Bible about their origin. We don't know where they came from. And they, by the way, represent an independent spirit. <laughs> so, Here's the meanings of each one of these nations. Canaanites represent worldliness and the love of money. They were the merchants. Amorites lived in the 
high places. They lived in hill country. They represent pride. Hittite, the very name means fear. And that's what they represent. Fear and unbelief. The Hivites practiced deception and hypocrisy. Hivites, we'll see, represent lying, deception, and hypocrisy. The Girgashites, the name literally means dwellers in clay or dwellers in earthy soil. They were stuck to the earth. They represent backsliding, slothfulness, just living an earthly life. The Parasites, as I mentioned, they represent independence, separation, and division. They were all to themselves. They had nothing to do with anybody else. They were their own king. They had their own cities, their own government, and we don't even know where they came from. And last but not least were the Jebusites, and I'm leaving these last because they were the last of the seven nations to finally be driven out only in the time of King David. And Jebusite means trodden down. They represent discouragement and depression. So, these seven nations represent different kinds of spirits, different kinds of sins that you and I need to conquer. And again, let me encourage you as we close tonight, God says, I've already defeated them. I've already gone before you. I've sent in my fire. I've sent in my hornets. But you make sure you don't make any alliances, any treaties with them. Don't compromise with fear. Don't compromise with pride. Don't compromise with backsliding or discouragement or any of these other things that are listed here. So, we're going to take these one by one. Um, hopefully, we'll cover one nation a week, but I can't promise that because some of them may take even longer. And as I mentioned, we did this whole sixth part of this series in three, three nights when we were down in Florida with translation into Spanish. So um, we're going to expand it a little bit more in our study here. So, let's close in prayer tonight. And again, I want you to be encouraged. It seems like a lot. These are greater, stronger than I am. I can't conquer these things in my own strength. And I'm not saying that to sound spiritual. I can't conquer pride, fear, unbelief, backsliding, the love of money, etc., etc. I can't conquer these in my own strength. I need God's help. And He's assured me that He's there to help me. He's gone ahead of me. He will defeat them. He just says, don't unite yourself with these spirits. Don't compromise with them. Annihilate them. Tear down their altars. Break any soul ties, any alliances with any of this stuff, because you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you, O God, for your word. I thank you for the assurance that your word gives us, that even though we have enemies, giants, powers and principalities that are stronger than we are, you've assured us of victory. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ because he loves us. And because you love us, you've assured us that you'll be with us, you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, you'll send in the hornets ahead of us, you'll bring the fire and the power of the Holy Spirit to drive out every one of these enemies and give us the victory. But, oh God, help us not to make the same mistakes the Israelites made of adopting their customs, copying them, joining in the same evil practices that were prevalent in their society. God, you've called us to come out from among them and be separate. You're a holy God. And Lord, I pray that you would sanctify us, cleanse us, wash our minds, wash our spirits, cleanse us with the water of your word, with the blood of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit to be the holy people that you've called us to be. Lord, you have called us into this life. You've started this good work, and you've assured us that you will complete it for the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to trust your every word and your every promise, that you will do exactly what you've promised to do. Help us to believe and help us to obey. And you've assured us that we will enter into your rest. Bless each and every one listening, those partaking tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.